Hello, everyone. Uh, I thought I gave the 30-second countdown. Let me give the 30-second countdown here. Still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host. Retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. You know, we've been covering this quadruple homicide in Idaho, outside the University of Idaho. Yesterday will be a month, four weeks since it occurred. There's been so many different questions, and there's been such a huge level of frustration, um, not just from law enforcement. You could see it on the frustration that many people covering this case have. They're almost like demanding answers from the police department. And guess what? The police department doesn't have to give you answers to your questions. What they're most concerned with is the integrity of their investigation. And if giving you information compromises the integrity of the investigation, they're going to withhold it. I think everyone is expecting a press conference today for an update. What have been some of the new things in the last week, last few days? And the only really uh, new news that we've had is this white Hyundai Elantra, uh, either a 2011 through the years 2013, they're searching for that car. They made a statement that the person driving or persons in the car. So they obviously know more than they've released. If there were person or persons in this car, are they witnesses or are they suspects? If the car was seen or caught on video or a witness saw it between the hours that they're interested in, 0300 by 0400, that's 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., then this is potentially really, really good information. But they haven't released really enough to the general public, to the press, to satisfy everyone. The other problem is with this case is that a lot of content creators, and we've spoke about ethics before, and many of these content creators have zero ethics, and all they're interested in is clicks 
and uh, subscribers to their channel, which equal advertisers and advertising dollars. Someone even went as far as to fabricate a scream and put it out there as the truth. In my mind, I'm not going to name that individual. I have his name. He should lose his channel. He should be banished to bogeyland. How horrific is that? And apparently this person has done this before. You know, I'm amazed that YouTube allows this type of conduct because even sometimes if you name your, um, your the title of your show and it's a little bit too provocative, they'll demonetize you. So this guy, not only does he do something dishonest, but horrific, horrific. And what, is, he, is he still broadcasting? Apparently, this person has removed that video from YouTube, but there's people that saved it. So the evidence is still out there. Anyway, I don't want to spend all my time on this guy, but many of us are frustrated. You know, many people also who have never investigated a murder, for to them, one month is intolerable. It should be solved in 48 hours. That's what they tell us on TV. The case should be solved in 48 hours. And if you don't solve in 48 hours, it's that much more difficult to solve. And that happens to be true, but not impossible. All right. This is a very complicated case, you know, and it's not TV. It's not, you know, press that easy button and we're going to come up with the, the name of the perpetrator. People are very frustrated that there's not a what the broadcast media calls a person of interest. I've never used that term in all of my 27-year police career. What we used was a suspect. But media invented that person of interest, you know, which I still don't use to this day. But look, we want to we want to be updated on this. Just and I think that the people in the Moscow community are frustrated because they don't they don't want this investigation around them anymore you know but that's too bad four young students lost their lives and this will take as long as it takes and um this is uh from news nation and they're talking about the ex expectation of today there being a press conference and um about about what that means to this investigation. So let me play a little bit of this on the screen. And they're going to talk about all where we are at this point in this investigation. Day from police as this week marks one month since the murders of four University of Idaho students, the small community on edge as families gathered over the weekend for graduation ceremony. No arrest has been made and family members of the victims are asking for answers. Rumors are swirling on the internet about the killer and police are cracking down on social media sleuths, threatening possible charges. News Nation's Nancy Liu is in Moscow, Idaho with the latest. The rental home that was filled with friendship and the joys of college life has been tragically quiet for weeks. A 24-7 security guard is here to preserve a quadruple murder scene. Neighbors no longer want to comment, and locals wonder why a full month hasn't yielded more answers. It doesn't seem too hard in a college town you know, there's Wi-Fi everywhere. You can track phones so easily. Uh, 
My phone connects to everything I walk by. Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves were stabbed to death sometime during the morning of November 13th. Moscow police officials tell News Nation they will provide a new update on the investigation on Monday. One former FBI special agent believes the suspect is someone familiar with the property. I actually think that it's highly possible that he is integrated himself back into the community. What this person did, I'm going to say he because my gut tells me that it is a male. Um, you know, what this person tells me is, is, is yes, they are very much um, a, a cold-hearted killer. Police have yet to publicly name any suspects or persons of interest, but no offer of a reward has some speculating that there is one. Why would you give them a reward if you already have the person of interest in mind? Speculation has been rampant since police have been tight-lipped other than a specific plea for information about a white Hyundai Elantra. Online sleuths continue to raise questions about a student who interacted with two of the victims at a food truck and the roommates who slept through the killings. Online threats of police considering criminal charges against those crossing the line. We're the official source of information. We want people to um, pay attention to what we're putting out there because that is accurate information in anything that comes from other sources um, is either rumor or speculation and we want to put an end to that as soon as possible. Nancy Liu, News Nation. So folks, you can see the level of frustration and I think a lot of the information that they've decided not to put out there any longer is because of all the rumors and that every bit of information they put out there generates much more work for them in the way of perhaps tips that are not really helping them. Every single tip that is called in has to be, must be investigated. So they, I had spoken earlier and I had spoken the other night when I was on with uh, Michael Geary, the professor from Albertus Magnus in New Haven, Connecticut that I believe that the Moscow police and the Idaho State Police and the FBI, I believe they have a direction. They have a focus in this case. And that information they're not necessarily uh, putting out there. On the screen right now, I have a picture of uh, 2011 and 2013 Hyundai Elantra, uh, which they know a lot more about that car. I believe that was put out Thursday evening. Uh, at this time, I say no suspect has been identified and only vetted information that does not hinder the investigation will be, be released to the public. We encourage referencing official releases for accurate information and updated progress. All press releases and information related to this case are available, of course, at the Moscow Police State post everything on Facebook. I think they're really, you know, I, get, I think they're sick and tired of re-answering questions about information that they've all, already uh, either verified or said, no, that's totally nonsense. So they spend a lot of time doing that. And I think that that is frustrating to them. There's a limited amount of uh, manpower to do that. Uh, Mar H., um, Bill, what do you think about the update today? Uh, will it be, let me put you on the screen. 
Uh, Bill, what do you think they will say in the update today? Will there be meat to their talk? Um, I don't think so. I think they're going to just put out enough to satisfy uh, the media and then to just pull back. I think they have learned, sort of learned their lesson about releasing too much information and they, they don't want to... Um, they don't want to have to deal with all of this. A lot of it, and again, a lot of it, we called it, is, is noise. There are so many, you know, content creators on the internet, on YouTube, and other folks that they have no clue about crime or about investigation, but they just put out nonsense because they're trying to get an audience and they're trying to get subscribers, you know. But you can listen to them and, and you know, you should decide that don't support them. You know, this guy who put out that scream, he's got, I believe he's got like 200 something thousand subscribers. They should all leave that guy. That's, in, you know, that dishonest, his dishonesty, that's obviously not a first time, you know, that he did that. And there's others, there's others that do it too. You know, we have spoken about the integrity of investigate, of an investigation. And the only people that really should be conducting this investigation are the police, not content creators, not people, you know, when we, when we get crazy, when content creators interview principal witnesses in a case, that to me is 100% wrong. They should not be doing that. And there's even those that'll say, oh, the police asked us. No, they didn't. Where did you just make that up from? You're lying. They did not ask you to do that. And, you know, it, it, it's horrific that people do that. And, um, we we 100% don't condone that and we think that is is outrageous but you know the the other thing is is that so many folks even the media you can see their level of frustration right now they are so so frustrated that there's not more information but that's the nature of investigation and just not they're just not going to put it out there this is um, I'm going to play a little bit from news nation and this is Brian Enton showing the potential route that the killer or killers may have taken that night. And this is, was on Ash Ashley Banfield. Well, you know, it's really hard to get inside the head of a killer, but it might be possible to put yourself in his footsteps. Earlier, we looked at the route that a killer would have had to take if he were driving to the crime scene. But what if he arrived on foot? What if he left the same way? News Nation's Brian Enton retraced how he may have disappeared into the night on foot. Actually, at the beginning of the show, we showed you how the killer may have drove in, what the roads are like in this area. And there's only one way in and one way out. But if you were on foot, um, it's it's easier to get in and out. Uh, not so much from the back, because I showed you at the beginning of the show, there's a wooded area. There's sort of a steep incline back there and then more houses. And there's these fences. Some of the other houses on, on the side are fenced in. Uh, but if you left the front of the house, you wouldn't have to walk down the road the way we drove in. You could cut through, and this is what a lot of the students do um, that, that we've seen coming and going. There's this little walkway that cuts through between a big apartment building um, and a couple of houses on this side. And this is the way a lot of the kids um, go to class or go to the fraternity houses. They walk down this little pathway in between the buildings. Um, and they come out to this parking lot right here. So you bypass that whole road that we drove in on. And you end up here in this parking lot. And then you've got access to the main drag here. You've got the field, um, band field, which we've been talking about. 
And then there's the Sigma Chi house. Um, so you're pretty much out at the campus um, just within maybe like 30 seconds by taking that uh, little shortcut, Ashley. Brian Enton, just absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that. And thank you everyone for being with us through the breaking news tonight. Folks, you know what I don't think Brian Enton spoke about in that report was that what if the killer or killers parked away from the house and then walked through the woods and approached the house that way? I think that's more probable than actually pulling up and parking in the parking lot near the house or in the front of the house. I don't think uh, a stealth uh, killer who obviously pre-planned this uh, would, would pull up that way. So that's a real that's a real possibility. You know, so many of the things that uh, uh, the investigative possibilities in this case, everything has been discussed. Um, some of the we would expect at this point, some of the or, or most of the forensic evidence to be coming back. Um, and the biggest question we all have, and we spoke about it uh, numerous times, is, is the blood evidence. You know, everyone feels, anyone that's ever worked a murder case before, feels that the blood in this case had to have been, the, the killer had to have cut himself. And the blood had to have been commingled with, with the victim's blood. So we, we're, we're wondering, when is it going to come back? Uh, when when it, When is that that information going to come back to the police. And we think that potentially they have a lot of that uh, evidence back. And that is what we believe. And most people that have ever worked a homicide case before, we believe that the forensic evidence, the scientific evidence is what's going to help, uh, what's going to solve this case. And um, we were all waiting for it. You know, um, Ed Wallace was on duty runs the other night, probably the best, not probably, he is the best uh, crime scene forensic guy that's available on YouTube and on the internet right now. The most experienced, he teaches all over the world. And when he says something, I really take it to heart. You know, there's a lot of folks that, uh, that are talking as experts on this case, and many of them are not experts. Ed Wallace is truly a crime scene expert. Uh, Frisco Pisco, great name. Hi, Bill. Coming in late here. How about the apartment building behind the home? Maybe the killer lives there, possibly walked there. Well, I would uh, look, there's any, I don't want to put down anything anyone says. Anything is possible. That one, probably a bit improbable. Um, I have put my two cents in a lot um, in regards to. Um, the fact that I, I believe that this killer is from this community. Uh, we talk about geographical profiling. Most killers, not all, commit crimes in, in around or near where they live. Um, careful consumer, Jody, he also left no blood on the kitchen flooring to the other host. How did he do that? You know, I can't verify. I don't think really any of the... Uh, Evidence has been verified by the police or the crime scene guys. So anyone that says that isn't getting it from the horse's mouth. 
Um, I, uh, over time, what if he didn't leave blood? It would be hard to cut yourself using a cable or knife. No, no, I don't think so. I think that even though it has that little, I forget what that's called, the block between the blade, blade and the handle, um, once blood gets on the handle, and if you stab someone and you hit bone, your hand is going to slide off that handle uh, toward the blade. And so even with a K-bar knife that has that that little, um, I, I don't have the name, Barbara Butcher spoke about it the first time she was on, I don't think it would totally block your hand. And I think that there's still a possibility that you could cut yourself using a K-bar knife, uh, a distinct possibility. Um, Angela Ang, a guard. Yeah, I don't, Angie, I don't know if that's what it's called. It's called something else, but that's that'll be suitable for us non-knife experts, you know. <laughs> Maybe one of the knife experts out there. Sergeant George Ishag, how are you, buddy? Good to see you. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to help support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel with five, count them, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font that are in our chat. They're part of our YouTube family. Uh, so again, uh, if you're just tuning in, there is supposed to be a press conference today uh, with the um, Moscow police giving some kind of update to this case, whether it's really a meaningful update or whether they're just trying to keep the press at bay by withholding more information. I think that it's smart for them not to release a lot of information. There's been people, even content creators on the internet that are really upset about it. There's one doctor, a PhD, really smart guy. And he, he says, oh, the only reason they're doing it is because if they do get a suspect, they want to be able to question the suspect and see if he really is the killer by him only knowing things that the real killer would know, because that's why they're withholding it. That's not the only reason they're withholding it. There's many other reasons. That's one of the main reasons, but that's not the only reason. Uh, this was from uh, a little clip played from Fox. I'm going to play this on the screen. Everyone, of course, from the broadcast media is frustrated with this case. Of that house on campus where those four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death now almost a month ago. Okay, this was the scene. Uh, many uh, investigators there with that U-Haul truck uh, were taking some of the personal items of the victims uh, that belonged to the victims and they were returning them to their respective family members. Uh, and we want to get an update on this story right now, too, because uh, police have just uh, announced that they are looking for something that might assist them in their investigation. We're going to be joined right now by uh, Live Now's own Andy Mack uh, in our newsroom. Okay, Andy, fill us in. What are police looking for, and why did they make this announcement now? Well, any news in this Moscow case with the four slain students, there is big news. And we're getting news that they are looking for a potential car and the occupants in it as they are looking for. We had an update from the Facebook page. As you can see there, 
speaking, hoping to speak with the occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with an unknown license plate. Tips and leads have led investigators to look into additional information about the vehicle being in that immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of November the 13th. Of course, this, the Hyundai Elantra, you can see there just a stock picture as investigators believe the occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding this case. And as you know, what police have told us is that these four victims were stabbed between three and four in the morning. The four students, they returned just early morning hours of this uh, November 13th in uh, in this residence in Moscow. And it was uh, between three and four that they believed they were stabbed. So certainly looking for the occupants of those uh, potential car, that white Hyundai Elantra. Of course, Lee saw this earlier today. So we followed both of these cases here today as uh, they were over two hours packing up the belongings of the four murdered Idaho college students, including one victim's pink cowboy boots, Moscow police chief James Fry, and at least six other officers were in this residence early this morning. Uh, officers could be loading that U-Haul with plastic bins, boxes, and a white office chair, and also artwork. Fry told reporters at the scene that they had removed, quote, some of the things the family wanted and other belongings that were there, end quote. So certainly uh, a couple new developments we're getting here out of Moscow, looking into that Hyundai Elantra, that white Hyundai Elantra. So if you have information, if you were in the car or if you have information about who might have been in a car like that in Moscow, Idaho, on the early morning hours of November 14th, Moscow police are asking for your assistance as it's been nearly three weeks and we have no suspect or suspects or even motive in this very tragic case. Andrew? Yeah, you know, Andy, so uh, the information they posted, they uh, offered both an email uh, and a tip line phone number, that phone number 208-883-7180, if you have any information. Uh, and, you know, uh, the viewers have been following along uh, to this story ever since it happened here on Live Now. We've been speaking to our reporters there in Moscow. There have been such few details, scant information released by police. Uh, we've been hearing, though, uh, from the family members of some of the victims, from some of the parents. We've been showing, uh, you know, the vigils that have been taking place as this community is just still in shock because there is such, you know, little information at this point in time. And I know we kind of glean on to little tidbits here. I think this is quite, quite large, quite major. They're looking for this vehicle. We don't know why. Uh, but as far as this investigation and this story goes, this is as big of a development as we, we have got. Correct. And they usually post on this Facebook about some information. We've only seen a couple press conferences, but like you said, this is one of the bigger tidbits of information. And again, it relates to the car, the white Hyundai Elantra, but also the time frame in which this car might be in that area, as police believe the stabbings occurred between three and four in the morning. So they're looking for this car that may or may not have seen possibly a suspect. So they're hoping to get a break in this case with what the occupants of this car may have seen on those early morning hours back on November 13th. Yeah, it's interesting because we know that they towed away all the cars that were in the parking lot uh, of the house itself. So police are not saying, you know, where in the vicinity of the house on the street they think this car might have been, but they, they want it nonetheless. Uh, Andy Mack there in the newsroom here uh, on Live Now. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll check in again. Thanks so much. So, folks, while we were um, watching this file tape, some of my best um, subscribers 
advised me that the name of the block between the handle and the blade is called the hilt, H-I-L-T. So thank you very much, uh, Brent Montgomery, Erna Ansbach. Thank you for the proper terminology to that. You know, a big question that that a lot of people have, uh, and this is a really legit, legit question, is how do they know the time of death? So one of the ways, obviously, are timestamps. Um, according to what they know, Ethan Chapin and uh, Zaina Canodal, they got home at 0145 hours. That's 145 a.m. in the morning. Initially, they thought that Madison and Kaylee Gonsalves also returned at 145, but video and other still photos determined that they, in fact, got home at 0156. Now, do you guys all remember that they were texting the boyfriend? Uh, I believe it was... Um, Kay Kaylee's boyfriend, um, I think they sent six or seven texts. Do we know when the last text stopped? That is a is a very significant timestamp. When was the last text sent? Therefore, was it at 2.15? Was it at 2.30? Was it at 2.45? That would give us a pretty significant timestamp. There are other ways also, scientific ways, body temperature. Every every deceased person, every victim of a murder, that is one of the checklist things that the medical legal investigator will do. They take temperature of the body. And it's not an exact science because the temperature will be affected by the, the room temperature. So if the room temperature is, uh, say, 72, or 70, um, the body temperature isn't going to drop as fast. And I think the rule of thumb, and, and I could be wrong if there's any of you uh, forensic scientists out there, the first hour uh, that the body is, is dead, I believe the temperature drops two degrees. And then every hour minus, it's not an exact science again, it drops one degree. So it, there is a there is a way that they can uh, through science some put give you a window of time of death, but not an exact window. There's something called rigor mortis. When does the body go into rigor mortis? Coagulated blood. That's when blood oxygen gets to blood and it becomes thick, and that uh, they can put a time frame on that too. Something called lividity. And lividity is the pooling of blood to the dependent side so that it would almost appear that the body has a, uh, a sunburn. And that's just that the blood pools because of gravity, and that will show on which side um, the person was lying on or where most of the blood, um, where the gravity pulled most of the blood to. So that's another potential uh, way. So temperature, lividity, rigor mortis, uh, and then much further on, but we wouldn't get to it, algal mortis and putrefaction, <clears throat> those things. But um, so they can have a pretty good idea, I think, of um, what the time, what the time of, uh, of death was. And that's, that concerns many, many people.
about, of course, it's important. It's important to the timeline. We're a month into this, and we haven't heard the police talk about uh, Ethan and Zena where they were for four or five hours that they can't uh, put a timeline on it because they have them at that fraternity party at nine o'clock and then they don't know where they were. I find Well, I find that not believable because they both had cell phones. The cell phone is a, um, a human moving uh, GPS device, a tracking device. So if they had their cell phones on, I believe the police know exactly where they were and what time and all of that stuff. But it might be that they don't want us to know that right now. So, and of course, the big the big evidence right now that we're all hearing about, the only thing we're hearing about is this white Hyundai Elantra. And um, that's very important. That's the only thing we know right now. And, you know, I, I think we, we stopped hearing a lot from... Uh, uh, from Kaylee Goncalves' father, Steve, I believe they must have um, brought him in and spoken to him. And again, I will say nothing bad about Steve Goncalves. He's a grieving father. He lost his daughter in the most horrific way. But I think the investigators probably brought him in and told him, look, uh, it's not helping the investigation. You talking about it with the media and uh, hiring private investigators, that's only going to hurt the investigation. So in some way, I think they must have gotten to him because you haven't seen him out there. You haven't seen him out there talking. You haven't seen him out there uh, giving interviews. So again, we, we, we pray for him and his family and the other families of uh, Ethan, Zena, Madison, and of course, Kaylee Gonsalves. And, you know, as I said yesterday on yesterday's broadcast, we never want to lose sight of the fact in our own humanity that these are real people. You know, this isn't like an exciting whodunit, but these are real people who have real families, who have real people that love them. And there's no worse way to lose someone than in a murder. Horrific, horrific, you know. Um, and they also say, and if there's parents out there that have experienced this, the loss of a child is something that you will never, ever get over in your remaining years on this earth. Uh, parents don't expect to lose their children. They, they expect to die before their children. And when it happens that you lose your child, it's, um, it's a horrific thing. You know, one of the, and I played this the other night, and I want to play it again because I re was really, there's been a lot of, um, I call them talking heads, and then I realized I was on Banfield last week. I was a talking head too. <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there that are giving their um, their opinion that, that are uh, behavioral analysts. I don't know if they all are. You know, I don't even know what the credentials, but, this gentleman who was on Ashley Banfield, uh, and I think his name was Greg uh, McCrary, old, older, older guy, obviously uh, retired from the FBI, but he was 
one of the uh, clearest and one who gave an explanation that I could accept. And I, I could accept it because it made the most sense. What we must realize is that behavioral analysts, they don't have a crystal ball. They can't really predict. They can, we all learned in, in school, in elementary school, hypothesis. What, you know, what is a hypothesis? Well, a hypothesis is an educated guess and all that's what it is. But when you lend experience, knowledge and education, the hypothesis becomes that much more believable and it's not a guess. Well, it still has an element of guesswork in it, but it's not a total guess. And I want you guys to listen to him because when they talk about uh, Katie Gonsalves, was she targeted because she had much more severe injuries than the others? Or was there any other possibility? And many um, behavioral analysts said, no, no, she was targeted. That she was, it's an indication she was targeted. And this gentleman, Greg McCrary, said, no, that's, well, let's hear what he had to say. I think it's important to listen to him rather than me. The mystery becomes less cloudy, right? But how do the new details change the profile of the killer? Now that we hear that Kaylee's injuries were significantly more brutal than Maddie's, what does it mean that both girls died in Maddie's room, but not Kaylee's? That is the business of Greg McCrary. He is a former FBI special agent whose job it was to construct behavioral profiles of unknown offenders. In fact, he wrote the book on it called The Unknown Darkness, Profiling the Predators Among Us. Greg, thanks so much for being here. You're a perfect voice in this you know, growing mystery. These new details are significant. I wonder how a mind like yours would process them. The fact that one of these girls had far worse injuries than the other, and yet was sleeping in a room that wasn't hers in the middle of the night when these murders happened. What do you make of that? Excuse me. We have to be careful that we don't uh, overinterpret uh, the information. And one hypothesis is that she was targeted. Perhaps that may explain the, you know, the, uh, a uh, number of wounds that are excessive in her. But I've had other cases where I've worked with multiple murders <clears throat> where one victim has been subjected to the most violence and turns out that wasn't a targeted victim. It was uh, the person who had put up the most resistance uh, and enraged the uh, killer. So they, they inflicted, the killer inflicted more wounds on that person, even though that person wasn't specifically targeted. So we could be dealing with with anything like that. So it's important not to get tunnel vision on a given hypothesis. Important to have multiple competing hypotheses and then let the evidence uh, sort that out and support. I think that this guy is great. He's the only behavioral analyst that left uh, this possibility open. There was one other one, a, a, a woman who was on uh, CBS the other night, I forget her name, but she was a professor, the head of a criminal justice program at a college. She was also excellent. But I think that what we, I mean, what, what I want to hear as a former homicide investigator is I want to hear um, truth and not just someone that thinks they can predict the future of saying, this is who this guy is. No, 
present the science to us and let us know the possibilities and both sides of those possibilities. One and, and, and maybe dismiss the other. So, so you have to be a little, a little bit careful with that. <clears throat> And, you know, so often we've heard, you know, from the police, from the coroner, uh, multiple reports that the kids were killed while they were sleeping. But then we hear about defensive wounds as well. And then there's this unusual aspect of two additional kids being killed or maybe three additional kids being killed if one or two were the targets. I'd love to get your thoughts on all of that, that, that piece that means like what kind of person would take a knife not a gun that's impersonal, a personal knife, a difficult physical endeavor in the middle of the night and take out four people as opposed to the one or the person who put up the fight. Yeah, a lot of personal, a lot of rage, obviously, with this. And it's up close and personal. Um, a knife uh, stabbing, obviously, you have to get very close to the victim. Um, and it's, it's just a different mindset uh, with, than it is. A, a firearm allows you distance from the victim. You don't have to interact with them necessarily up close. So it's an entirely different uh, quality to the uh, uh, to that type of uh, homicide uh, altogether. Now, from the investigative point of view, uh, uh, and again, uh, obviously, just let me say that I haven't seen the crime scene. I don't know. I'm not involved in a case, so I don't really have any inside information. But what you have to keep in mind, especially if there are defensive wounds or a lot of stabbing wounds, which there appear to be here, from an investigative point of view, that's very important because you have the likelihood of the offender's blood being at the scene. In other words, when someone commits a stabbing injury like this or stabbing murder with multiple uh, stab wounds, there's a high probability they cut themselves. The knife is in the strong hand, the weak hand is trying to control the victim, there's movement. And then the uh, uh, wound comes to the offender. He cut off in the either in the weak hand or with a lot of blood. It's very viscous. Slide down knife blade, and he can cut his strong hand. But regardless of the mechanics of it, um, they have to process that scene very, very carefully because there's likely to be offender blood at the scene, which obviously the DNA will be a link. Now another uh, lead that would spiral off of that would be to go to the emergency room of the hospital or primary care uh, facilities, whatever it might be in the area, uh, and ask if anyone, say, in the days after this had come in looking to get lacerations uh, sutured up that maybe were on their hands or their arms. This gentleman is outstanding. He covered so many things. You know, the hospital canvas, which is a checklist thing we would always do. But the fact that, you know, he, he was talking about the, the weak hand, like if he's stabbing with his strong hand, but if you're right, he'd be a right hand, and talking about potentially cutting his weak hand. I haven't heard any other behavioral analyst say anything about that. You know, folks, in the chat also, some of you guys are really smart and know a lot more, know a lot more than me about some things, and someone suggested one of the victims could have been wearing a smartwatch. And would that, in fact, give information about the time that that person's heartbeat stopped? I don't know enough about a smartwatch to say that, but I think there's a good potential, which in that case, that would give pretty much the exact time of death. So, uh, again, science and technology um, could have, you know, could predict and indicate the exact time of death. 
Uh, Overtime, uh, I love you guys in the chat. Some of you guys are excellent. Um, blood coagulation. Yeah, I, I said that body temperature, yes. Food processed in your stomach. Yeah, they would uh, combine or get a pretty good time of death. Yeah, that would be um, th those things you were referring to. Uh, um, food processed in the stomach would be um, done by the pathologist. The blood coagulation, the body temperature, that would be done right on the scene by the medical legal investigator. But thank you guys in the chat. I think it's important uh, if this old guy referring to me doesn't come up with something that you know, yeah, let me know. A smartwatch. That's why they call it a smartwatch, right? And uh, absolutely, that could have been uh, Dr. Pamela Cholette. I hope I pronounced your name right. Does playing the cat and mouse game with the police feed the killer's ego? Look, in some ways, some killers like to, uh, yeah, like to play that game, uh, Dr. Cholette. Um, the son of Sam in New York years ago, uh, uh, a guy who was a serial killer who was killing people in lover's lanes with a 44 caliber bulldog. He actually started writing to Jimmy Breslin from the Daily News and exchanging letters with him. Uh, others, you know, they leave little clues or they uh, they tease the police. I haven't seen that in this case. And we're not, you know, many people, we've talked to uh, psychologists, we've talked to a lot of law enforcement people, uh, and many of them, there's a few who believe that, uh, that this could have been the work of a serial killer. Dr. Joni Johnston, who's a forensic psychologist, who I just met last week on Duty Ron's show, who I really uh, liked and respected, she doesn't feel that this is a serial killer. So I, I respected her opinion. There are those out there that think that this could potentially be. I don't know what their, um, their evidence is or why they think that. Um, I personally don't think that this is a uh, a serial killer, but I'm just a cop, you know. I'm a cop with instincts, you know. And, and my instinct is that this person, and I've said it before, is from the neighborhood. And I even use the, the term, I believe he's a townie. I believe he's someone that lives in the Moscow. And some way he was disrespected. And he kept this rage inside of him. And the other part of that, of course, is that he knows these kids and he knows this house. And I think that we can count on that. Uh, so we got to we got to just we got to build this case and get the evidence we need to get this savage arrested and off the street and give closure. Well, I don't know if you ever have closure, but make an arrest in this horrific case because uh no one will rest at night. No one will feel safe in this Moscow, Idaho community until that occurs. Um, that would be something that, uh, you know, uh, investigators should pursue and, and uh, you know, take a look at. So th those are so just some thoughts. Zana's mom, Kara Northington, uh, obviously apoplectic over what's happened and understandably so, but she did tell me exclusively on Friday night that she believes the person who did this knew the kids and that they knew the person and that it was someone they knew and trusted. 
I know it's difficult for a mom to process a lot of this, but does any of that resonate for you in terms of the rage that it would take to do this while they were sleeping? Yes. Uh, I mean, it would take a lot of rage, a lot of anger. This is, this is, um, you know, very, very violent and multiple uh, victims like this. So it, it could be someone that they knew. It could be someone that knew them, but they didn't know all that well. Uh, this phenomena of uh, arousal mania, where someone gets a fixation on a victim, and the victim doesn't really know that that this fixation is in place, and then the uh, the erotomatic killer gets upset because they feel the victim is cheating on them because they go out with somebody else or, or you know whatever, and it's a delusional thing, and they go in and 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 commit the murder. But again, we're struck with the unusual nature of this with multiple uh, multiple victims. But again, the crime scene is dynamic. Um, a lot of a lot of it depends on victim offender interaction and, and what happened, which I can't really talk to because I you know have, I'm not familiar with the scene itself. Listen, that the FBI has provided support in this crime. There are upwards of 50 people from the FBI helping. There are several behavioralists helping as well. But the Moscow police remain the lead agency on this case three weeks and a day later. This is a tiny little town. They haven't had a murder here for seven years. And I'm curious, since you've been in the trenches with the FBI and you have landed on scenes like this before, not obviously exactly, but small towns with agencies that don't you know, do a lot more than parking tickets and some drunk tickets, when does it or does it should it ever um, be turned over to another agency to take the helm to turn to the states or turn to the FBI experts to take over the investigation? Uh, you know, folks, I don't think that uh, the FBI will ever take this case over. You know, I was in a unit when I was on the NYPD called Manhattan North Homicide Squad, and it was a task force. And we had three sergeants, one lieutenant, and 18 detectives when I was there. And we were a task force that responded anywhere in Manhattan North where there was a homicide. And it was made clear that we were not catching the case. The numbered squad, the 19th Precinct had the homicide, the 2-0, the 2-4, the 2-3, Central Park, the 3-0, the 3-3, the 3-4, the 2-8, the 3-2. Whatever numbered squad had the homicide in their geographic area, that detective from that squad caught the case. And in, in a companion case, case detective from Manhattan North Homicide would share responsibility. But the main responsibility was for that numbered squad. And that was done for a very good reason, because the crime of homicide is the highest level of crime you could ever investigate. There is no worse crime than the murder of another human being. So whoever came up with that idea in the detective bureau was brilliant because they wanted the squad that caught that case to be responsible, to be proud of the work they did, to be proud of the community that they represented and be cognizant that their work was going to solve this case. You know, I would love to quote that book. It used to be the Bible of homicide investigation. It's called Practical Homicide Investigation by retired NYPD Lieutenant Vernon Geberth. And he used to say in his book, we work for God. And because 
you're working for someone that can no longer speak for themselves. They're dead. And also their family. So I compare this in a way that the Moscow Police Department should never have this case taken from them. They are the police department of record. No matter how inexperienced they are at this, it's their case. It's their community. Their detective, their most experienced detective, probably caught this. And FBI, Idaho State Police, you assist. You help them. You give your expertise. You lend your expertise. You help them. You bring your resources to the table. The FBI has not just good investigators. They have fabulous uh, toys, we used to call it. You know, one of the things that I was counting on in this case, and I haven't heard a lot about it, is something called geofencing. And that's where the FBI would do what we call in law enforcement as a dump, a dump of the, uh, of the, where the cell phones are hitting, the towers that the cell phones are hitting. And during a certain time period, say in this case, but say between the hours of 0200 and 0400, we want to know every single electronic device that is in use in that area. And they have the potential to do that. Most police departments cannot afford to do this because it costs it costs thousands and thousands of dollars just to do a phone dump. And I know a lot of you guys were surprised when I said, oh, we, we need to uh, do a phone dump through the carrier, Verizon, AT&T. That's not free. That's not free. If, if a, a, a provider, a carrier does a phone dump for a police department, sometimes it's $1,000 a day for that information. And I know a lot of you guys are, are shocked. You think Verizon is going to put investigators on it around the clock or as long as it takes for free? No, they expect to get paid and they charge law enforcement to do that. So now fast forward to a tower that may have thousands of hits. They have to sift through that. And many of you may be shocked at, oh, how could the killer have a cell phone on him or use a cell phone? You, you know, even as much as we could talk about elimination. What if he was in the area at another time and conspicuously his cell phone is not in the area? So there's elimination ways to do this investigation in addition to uh, finding all electronic devices that were used. It's very complicated. It is not an easy thing to do, but it absolutely can be done. The technology is there. Obviously, you have legal jurisdiction issues and and I will give certainly Moscow police credit for bringing in state police bringing in the FBI uh, sometimes there's the um, uh, there people are too guarded jurisdictionally some agencies say I don't need any help I can handle this myself so I certainly give them credit for bringing in the outside agencies and hopefully they're listening and following uh, the directions uh, that they're getting from the state police and from the FBI as to how to you know, how to proceed and um, taking advantage of the expertise and the resources uh, that the local PD simply uh, doesn't have. But just quickly, 10 seconds left. At some point, should this be turned over to another agency, a bigger agency, perhaps the biggest agency? Uh, well, again, it's going to be a jurisdictional issue. If they're working jointly with them, um, 
you know, I think they can probably handle this as long as they've got the resources. They're tapping into the resources of federal government and, and state police. Um, uh, hopefully they can uh, hopefully they can handle this thing. It's difficult, but uh, mm -hmm. they need to uh, need to not cave into the pressure, move to a suspect driven rather than an evidence driven investigation. Wise counsel, Greg McCrary, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Greg McCrary was the best, the best talking head I've seen in the entire duration of this case. That guy's the real deal. And uh, when I see someone like that, I just want to, uh, I want to praise because I do a lot of criticizing. So he's the best. The guy, the guy hit it on the head and, uh, He's no bullshit, you know? He's the real, real deal. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. If you want to support this channel, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube family members. You can see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family, and we appreciate every single one of them. Where is this case going now? That is what everyone wants to know. That is the questions that everyone is asking. Uh, where do they go? And I said earlier on, I believe, I believe in my heart that they have investigative direction. I believe they know where they're going with this. I believe they have evidence. I believe they're targeting a specific person or persons but they do not want to release that yet. Can you imagine the uproar and the shitstorm? Let's use the, uh, the street words. The shitstorm it would cause in the media if they start putting out information before they're 100% sure that this is, this is the suspect. Or as the media says, this is the person of interest. You know, the person of interest. So again... They want to keep things close to the best. We have been told that today um, there's a good chance there's going to be a press conference. I think they'll probably just reiterate the information about uh, the Hyundai uh, Elantra, the 2011 to 2013. I don't think there's going to be any smoking gun information that everyone's going to say, oh, now I know. Now I know which way they're going. I think that they purposely want to keep that close to the vest. You know, folks, the, the picture that I have on the screen, I just, it, it almost says so much. You know, when they say a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's the front of their, of the house um, after they removed the four vehicles. And you see the empty spots with the, where it was covering up, of course, the snowfall. It's just sort of a metaphor and just sadness to see that picture because we know, we in fact know what occurred in that house. And a month has gone by and there's no arrest and there's no what the media would call a person of interest. But just know everyone that follows this show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, and we try as well as duty run tries to put out factual information and not put out innuendo and rumor. And uh, 
try to get our information from the horse's mouth, which in this case is from the police. Um, so I think it's important to do that. And I, and I, when we speak about integrity on YouTube, uh, I think Duty Ron and myself and a few other people have integrity on, on YouTube. There's many people that have zero integrity and all they're interested in is, is clicks and, uh, and just, you know, getting their channel more subscribers. And I think that's, that's dangerous to do that. You know, uh, Heather, whatever smartwatch, stupid perp. If you left it on, uh, Sergeant Cannon, you have such a beautiful voice. Well, thank you so much. I'm not going to sing today, but uh, this is the, the the companion show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. When I do the show outside using my gimbal, it's sort of um, a different show, a different feel, a little bit of a lighter show. Coffee with Cannon, Backyard Beverage, Bitchin' with Bill, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, folks, as I was saying, I, I spoke about yesterday, we are all hoping and praying that there is an arrest in this case. There's no way that any of us can see that. Uh, Scorch 429, the only thing that jives with not being a serial killer is police Police have said it's targeted. If they're wrong about that, he could be. Um, you know, we heard early on that it was targeted and personal, and then a couple of times they walked that back. Donnie does dishes, a townie or a student, potentially. You know, I, I had said earlier on, I, I hope that they interviewed every single person in that fraternity or attempted to, because I think that was necessary. Every single person in that fraternity should have been interviewed, and the sorority for that matter. Uh, Vinny D, the young wolf, it definitely can be a serial killer, but still targeted someone who was watching them. Um, technically, Francesca says, te technically only two victims were supposed to be there then. Um, Jackie, wow, townie, got to bear that in mind. Uh, guys, you know something, one of the things that... Um, Over time, uh, if we can answer why the two roomies downstairs were not harmed, we can get a better idea at who the perp could be. Well, over time, there's many reasons that the uh, perpetrator could have passed by or decided not uh, to kill the two girls who were on the first floor. And one of them is that, A, both of those rooms apparently were locked. The other one was that, Maybe he felt that he had spent too much time in the house already and wanted to get the hell out of the house and to escape, to flee. These are all possibilities. That is something that um, I don't know if that goes to um, looking at the, the killer's personality or looking to what we would call his uh, behavioral analysis or his perpology, the study of the perp. I don't know if it goes to that, but uh, there could be many reasons other than the fact that he didn't target those two. That's that's a distinct 
Look, there, there are many reasons that could be, but we don't know 100%. So it could be, you know, would have, could have, should have. We know all of that stuff. But right now we can't uh, predict why it is. We can, you know, hypothesize. That's the very best, best we can do is hypothesize. You know, folks, I've been here. Um, I've been talking to you guys for about an hour and uh, coming up an hour and four minutes. Uh, I'm heading back to New York today. Some of you guys that are new to this channel, I'm in Jupiter, Florida, and I'm going to head back. Uh, I'm flying back to New York today. Hopefully, I'll do a couple of uh, shows in New York, and then I'm going to head back to Jupiter, Florida. I'll probably spend um, the holidays here in Jupiter, Florida. But I want to thank all you guys uh, for tuning in today. This case is a its a fascinating case, even though, as I said, we can never lose track of what occurred here. Uh, it's a horrific, horrific case, a violent case. And um, we can only hope and pray that the evidence comes in and we find out and the Moscow police, along with the Idaho State Police and the FBI, arrest somebody. So having said that, guys, again, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day. And from Police Off the Cuff, Bill Cannon, God bless. Have a great day. One episode, just